بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم الحمد لله رب العالمين وصلى الله وسلم وبارك على سيدنا ومولانا محمد وعلى آله وصحبه وسلم تسليما كثيرا اللهم علمنا ما ينفعنا وانفعنا بما علمتنا وزدنا من فضلك علما وتعليما إنك على كل شيء قدير وبعد السلام عليكم ورحمة الله وبركاته Nice to see such a large crowd today, alhamdulillah. Uh, does anyone know the number of the lesson we're on today? 99. So we're almost at 100. And last week we discussed, we've been discussing now the Treaty of Al-Hudaybiyah for a couple of weeks. And last week we were discussing the back and forth between the Muslims at Al-Hudaybiyah and Quraysh these back and forth negotiations or attempts at negotiations. So we mentioned how Urwa ibn Mas'ud of the Thaqafi tribe of Ta'if was sent on behalf of Quraysh to go and negotiate with the Prophet Then we talked about the negotiations or the attempted negotiation of Khirash ibn Umayyah who was sent by the Prophet and how that didn't really lead to anything because they attacked him and the camel. Then we talked about the negotiation with Mikraz ibn Hafs and Hulais ibn Al-Qama. And then finally we talked about how the Prophet instructed Umar bin Khattab to go to Mecca and be the representative of the Muslims in those negotiations. And we mentioned last week that Sayyidina Umar radiallahu anhu was worried that Quraysh might attack him because of the previous enmity that he had with him and also because he did not have a sufficient tribal support in Mecca that could protect him. So he suggested to the Prophet wasallam that instead of him going, that he send instead who? Uthman ibn Affan radiallahu anhu. And we mentioned also last week the wisdom behind this suggestion. Why was it a good idea for Uthman to be the negotiator on behalf of the Muslims instead of Umar? Because of the tribal affiliation. Because Sayyidina Uthman is from Banu Abd shams who is also, which is also the same clan as who? Abu Sufyan. So because he's the de facto leader of Quraysh, someone from his own clan going and negotiating is a, is a good idea because there's family ties as well. Now, when we talk about Umar bin Khattab radiallahu anhu, we're actually very used to hearing stories about different hypocrites Munafiqun giving certain slights to the Prophet or saying things that expose their hypocrisy. And time and time again, we hear in the story of Umar that when people say those kinds of things, he has a very typical response. In almost all of those narrations, when he hears someone slighting the Prophet or expressing Nifaq, what does he often say? He would often say, 
يا رسول الله دعني أضرب عنق هذا المنافق O Messenger of Allah, allow me to strike this hypocrite down. So often we're used to hearing that. To the point where a person might get the impression that Umar bin Khattab is a bit hot-tempered. Maybe he's a very temperamental person. And we see from this particular incident the exact opposite. Instead of someone who others might think is hasty, and temperamental, we see that Umar bin Khattab radiallahu anhu is being very considerate of what he feels is the best interest of the Muslims, which is him not going. Instead, someone like Uthman ibn Affan radiallahu anhu. So we see that he's not a person of haste. He is a person who considers the long-term effects of things. So we're now at that stage in the seerah where Uthman leaves Al-Hudaybiyah, and goes to Mecca. Uthman radiallahu anhu responds to this call of the Prophet وسلم, and he leaves Al-Hudaybiyah and makes his way to Mecca to engage in these negotiations. On his way to Mecca, he reached a place called Balda, and when he got there, the people saw him and they asked him, what is he doing? It's a small town. And people who are in small towns recognize strangers. And they ask him, what is he doing? And Uthman radiallahu anhu says, The Messenger of Allah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam has sent me to invite you to Allah, to call you to Islam, and to inform you that we have not come to fight anyone. Rather, we have come merely as visitors of the Kaaba to perform their Umrah. And when he said that, the people of Balda allowed him to continue all the way to Mecca. He goes to Mecca, whereupon he meets one of his cousins. And this cousin's name is Abban ibn Sa'id ibn Aas. And his cousin welcomes him. Not only does he welcome him, his cousin gives him aman. He gives him the guarantee of security the guarantee of protection. And we've spoken about that several times from the Meccan period of the Seerah and even in the Medinan period of the Seerah, this tribal custom, which actually endures in Islam as well, which is that if you have someone entering into a different territory, who doesn't have protection, so to speak, someone from that tri some tribe, a tribal elder or a person of influence can grant that person a man, a man meaning security and protection so that no one can harm them. And so Abban gives him this a man, he welcomes him, and he gives him a ride on his horse going with him to Mecca. And here we see the change because Khirash ibn Umayyah was sent as an emissary to negotiate. He's riding on the camel of the Prophet Thalab, and the people knock him off the camel, they hamstring the camel, they beat him, he comes close to losing his life because he didn't have a man, he didn't have that guarantee of protection. But now Uthman has that guarantee, so he can go all the way in and actually engage in negotiations. So he goes to Abu Sufyan, and he's also in the company of the other chiefs of Quraysh, and once there, he delivers the message of the Prophet ﷺ that they've only come to perform their Umrah. 
to visit the Kaaba, that they don't, they don't intend to fight. And to this, they gave him the exact same reply they gave to the others. This will never come to pass. He will not enter this year. So Uthman radiallahu anhu, after conveying this message, they tell him, if you, Uthman, if you, however, want to perform the tawaf around the Kaaba, feel free to do so. Now put yourself in his shoes. Mecca is his homeland. He made hijrah. He's in Medina all of these years. This is six years later. You think he missed the Kaaba? Of course. He's now given the opportunity to make tawaf. What would you do if you were in Uthman's shoes? Maybe many of us would take that opportunity. Oof, I can, I can make tawaf. Right? But he's all by himself. Who's not there? The Prophet ﷺ. Who else isn't there? The rest of the Muslims in Al-Hudaybiyah. So Uthman's given this offer, but he says, I will not do the tawaf until the Messenger of Allah performs the tawaf. Because we don't do anything until our sahib, our companion, does it. And then we follow his example. So right out of the gate, he declined that offer to perform the tawaf. Even though he's right there, he didn't do it. So having been granted this security, this aman, and, been, and giving this chance to make the tawaf, it actually indicates something. It indicates that he's been granted some relative freedom of movement. So this means that he can walk around, he can go through the city. He's been granted that security, even though the negotiations have stalled. So he uses that opportunity with these clan ties with Abu Sufyan and that freedom of movement to go in Mecca and visit some of the Muslims who were musadafun, they're weak and were unable to make the hijrah. So he goes and visits them individually and he delivers to them the message of the Prophet What was that message he was told to, get, to tell them? To give them the good news that soon Allah will open Mecca for them and soon they won't have to hide their Islam anymore. So when we reconstruct the seerah in this stage, we do get the impression that Uthman radiallahu anhu is treading very carefully and he's attempting to negotiate with Quraysh because he didn't just hear Abu Sufyan and the chief say it's not happening and then goes back to Hudaybiyah. It's as if he's not taking no for an answer, but he's bidding his time. He's going here, he's going there, he's visiting some of the Muslims, they're hiding their Islam. So we get a sense that he's not taking their initial refusal. He's trying to give some more time to try to restart the negotiations, talk to them again perhaps. So this means that he's going to spend some time with them, he's going to talk to them, he's going to appeal to them. And if you're going to do all of that, what's going to happen? It's going to take you some time. The other emissaries that were sent are given the answer no straight away and then they go back. Uthman, however, isn't going straight back. And we see that this became the seed for some rumors to spread within the Muslim ranks at Al-Hudaybiyah. So there over in Al-Hudaybiyah waiting patiently for his return for any word either a clearance for them to leave and go do the Umrah 
or the message that no, they're still declining this and saying it's not going to happen this year. So during that time, as they're waiting for Uthman's return, these rumors begin to spread. And we don't have a lot of information about how the rumors started, who was the first to say it, and what did they say. But when we look at all the narrations together, we get a pretty clear idea of what happened. It seems like it started as a worry. So, you know, people are communicating their anxieties and worries. What's taking him so long? He should be back by now. Why is he being held up? Has something bad happened to him? So these are worries, but then eventually the worries get turned into a rumor that something bad has actually happened to him. So first there's worries, and eventually there becomes this seed of a rumor that begins to spread among the Muslim ranks of Al-Hudaybiyah. The rumor eventually turned into this fear, and then news, oh, Uthman has actually been killed. That he was grant, he was allowed to go there, but they they took him and they killed him, and they have a good reason to believe that was a possibility. Why do they have a good reason to believe that? Because Khirash bin Umayyah was almost killed. If he was almost killed, and he wasn't even there for a very long time, what about Uthman, who's now been gone for who knows how long? We could we could surmise that it would have been many hours or part of a whole day. So they did have good reason to worry that he could have been killed, but they had no solid information that he was killed. Nothing confirmed that. It was just a rumor. So this rumor takes a life of its own, as rumors do. And where it was first a worry, it now appears as a fact that he was in fact killed. And that news, of course, eventually reaches the Prophet wasallam. And when this news reaches him, he says, we will not leave until we exact revenge upon them and fight them. And it's interesting to reflect on this, because would it have not been possible that Allah Ta'ala disclosed through revelation, through wahi, that Uthman wasn't killed? Allah Ta'ala did not disclose to the Prophet that knowledge that he was actually safe. And there's a wisdom in him not receiving wahi about the status of Uthman, because this rumor basically became the seed for what we know now as Bay'at Ridwan, this pledge to avenge Uthman. Had it been confirmed that he was safe, then we can only surmise that wouldn't have happened, but it happened. And so we come to the Bay'at Ridwan. Now this Bay'ah, what is a Bay'ah? Bay'ah is known as a pledge of allegiance, a pledge of loyalty, a pledge of fealty. And we call it Bay'at Ridwan. It's also called Bay'at Rudwan, because in Arabic you have two ways of saying that word. Ridwan with Kasra or Rudwan with Dhamma. Both are valid in the Arabic language. And there's different types of bay'ah in the sunnah. When you look at the concept of bay'ah and the different applications of the bay'ah, you see that it took different forms. There is the political bay'ah 
of pledging loyalty to the Prophet Then there is the bay'ah of Islam itself, which is part and parcel of the conversion process that people will go through. You have bay'atun nisa, the bay'ah that was given particularly to the women, mentioned in the Qur'an, that when they come to you to give you the bay'ah, give them the bay'ah, the pledge, under certain terms, that they will not associate partners with Allah, that they will not steal, that they will not fornicate, that they will not kill their children in any fear of poverty, that they will not disobey you in that which is good and wholesome. And then if they agree to these terms, then give them the bay'ah and seek forgiveness of Allah on their behalf. So this is mentioned in the Qur'an for the nisa in particular. Uh, and then there are bay'ah for young people. There's so many different types of bay'ahs and different wordings or terms in the bay'ah. This is a particular form of bay'ah. It's not a political bay'ah because that's already been given by these Muslims. It's not a bay'ah of conversion to Islam that's already been given. So what kind of bay'ah is given here in what we know as bay'atul ridwan? We find that the companions themselves, they had a slight disagreement about the nature of the bay'ah. So you have two main views transmitted from the Sahaba. Some of them say that it was a bay'ah of fighting to the death if they have to, to avenge the murder of Uthman. There are other Sahaba who say, no, it wasn't actually a bay'ah of fighting to the death. It was a bay'ah that no matter what happens, we're not going to run away. We're not going to flee. We'll be firm. So you have the narration of uh, Salama ibn al-Akwa who said that the bay'ah was to fight to the death. And then you have the narration of Jabir ibn Abdullah who says, no, it was actually a bay'ah that we would not flee. But either way, it's this, it, it ultimately ends up being the same thing because it was a bay'ah that they would avenge the death of Uthman no matter what happens, no matter the aftermath. And this is important. It's important that he took that bay'ah from them even though he knows that they are loyal because you have to consider they were, number one, travelers. And they were tired and they were hungry, and they were thirsty, and they were outnumbered, and they were outarmed. So the bay'ah was to solidify the resolve and the intention to do what has to be done to avenge the murder of Uthman. At any rate, one narration says that a munadi, a caller, was sent by the Prophet ﷺ to go out and call the people at Al-Hudaybiyah and tell them that the angel Jibreel has come down to the Prophet ﷺ and he's calling you to all give allegiance to him. So it was Jibreel ﷺ, according to this narration, who conveyed that the bay'ah should be given and to this, the Prophet ﷺ responded by having this person gather the people for the bay'ah. So they gathered. Where did they gather? <clears throat> they gathered under a particular tree. The Prophet ﷺ was sitting beneath this tree and he took the bay'ah from them individually. 
and they would come and place their right hand in the right hand of the Prophet ﷺ and give the bay'ah, the pledge, that they would avenge the murder of Uthman. Now the question is, why is it called bay'atul ridwan? What does ridwan even mean? Ridwan, it comes from the word rida, which means satisfaction or pleasure. And it's called bay'atul ridwan because Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala revealed the details of this bay'ah in Surah Al-Fatih. And he mentions his ridwan upon them, his pleasure and satisfaction with them. Allah Ta'ala says in Surah Al-Fatih, إِنَّ الَّذِينَ يُبَايِعُونَكَ إِنَّمَا يُبَايِعُونَ اللَّهِ يَدُ اللَّهِ فَوْقَ أَيْدِيهِمْ فَمَنْ نَكَثَ فَإِنَّمَا يَنْكُثُ عَلَى نَفْسِي وَمَنْ أَوْفَى بِمَا عَاهَدَ عَلَيْهُ اللَّهَ فَسَيُؤْتِيهِ أَجْرًا عَظِيمًا He says, subhanahu wa ta'ala, those who give their fealty to you, their bay'ah to you, they give their fealty, their loyalty to Allah. Allah's hand is above their hands. So whoever betrays it is betraying their own selves. And whoever fulfills the pledge they have with Allah, Allah will give them a tremendous reward. After that, in the same chapter, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, لَقَدْ رَضِيَ اللَّهُ عَنِ الْمُؤْمِنِينَ إِذْ يُبَايِعُونَكَ تَحْتَ الشَّجَرَةِ فَعَلِمَ مَا فِي قُلُوبِهِمْ فَأَنزَلَ السَّكِينَةَ عَلَيْهِمْ وَأَثَابَهُمْ فَتْحًا قَرِيبًا Allah is pleased with the believers when they pledge their allegiance to you under the tree. He knew what was in their hearts and he sent down sakina, serenity, tranquility upon them and rewarded them with a close victory or a victory close at hand. So this is the verse from which we get the name Bay'atul Ridwan because Allah mentions Allah. And this is also where we get the practice of saying after mentioning the name of the Sahaba Radiallahu anhu, radiallahu anha, radiallahu anhum, and so on. It's a dua where we say, may Allah be pleased with them. This is a dua that we make when we mention the name of the Sahaba, specifically or collectively. And as a dua, it is permissible to use for other than the Sahaba. There's nothing to say that it's restricted to them. It can be used for others. But it is for them in the first order because it was revealed about them specifically. Uh, but as a general dua, you can say it for others as well. But for them, it is in the first position. So the Prophet is sitting under this tree. And of course, you can imagine this is 1,400 to 1,500 people. This is taking some time. People are coming in different groups, they're putting their hand in his hand, they're pledging the loyalty. And every single person gave the bay'ah of the 1500, except for one. Except for one person. This person's name was Al-Jad ibn Qais. And he was known as a munafiq. And you have to wonder, why did he come along for the journey? But he was there, and he did not pledge the bay'ah. The narrations mention that when it was time for the bay'ah, he went and hid behind his camel. And, you know, just obscuring 
his position so that others couldn't see that he was lagging behind. But they noticed, they saw. And there's other hadith which mention uh, a dua of the Prophet against the person hiding behind the camel. There's one individual only. So this bay'ah is given, and when all of them had finished giving the bay'ah, we find a very interesting narration. The Prophet takes his right hand and he places it in, what do we call it? His other right hand, we would say his left hand. Uh, but we say both of his hands are right in the sense of praise. He takes his right hand and places it in his left hand. And he gives the bay'ah on behalf of Uthman. Anhu. He does this and he says, this is for Uthman. He is on an errand from Allah and his messenger. So he takes the bay'ah on behalf of Uthman anhu, and his left hand symbolizes the right hand of Uthman anhu. So after he gives the bay'ah, or he takes the bay'ah rather, from everyone, he says some words of praise for the people who gave the bay'ah of Ridwan. He says, you are the best people on the earth. And in one narration he says, no one who gave the bay'at al-ridwan will enter the hellfire. This is in Sahih Muslim. So we understand from this also the high rank of those Sahaba in particular who gave the bay'at al-ridwan. And we've mentioned a number of times in this class that the Sahaba themselves are tabaqat. There's degrees, there's hierarchy of the Sahaba. They're not all on an equal field. You have at the foremost, as-sabiqoon al-awwaloon min al-muhajireen wal-ansar. You have the foremost among them. And you have, of course, the ten promised paradise. You have the four khulafa. But in that hierarchy of superiority, at near, near the top, you have, of course, the people of Badr and Uhud. But you also have the people who were there on this day who pledged the bay'at al-radwan. Now we have to go back to Surah Al-Fatih. Because in Surah Al-Fatih, we see another indication of what is going on, as well as what is going to happen quite soon in the future. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala mentions, after talking about the bay'ah, and him being pleased with them, he says, فَأَنزَلَ السَّكِينَةَ عَلَيْهِمْ وَأَثَابَهُمْ فَتْحًا قَرِيبًا He placed sakina upon them, tranquility, and rewarded them with a victory close at hand. And then he says, وَمَغَانِمَ كَثِيرًا يَأْخُذُونَهَا وَكَانَ اللَّهُ عَزِيزٌ حَكِيمًا He's also rewarded them with a victory at hand and abundant spoils of war, abundant ghanima that they will take. And Allah is almighty and wise. This part of the verse, what is Allah talking about when he says, Fathan qariba, a victory near at hand and abundant spoils of war. It's not about Mecca, it's about Khaybar. And that's coming up after we talk about the Treaty of Al Hudaybiyah. So that's coming up. So in this poverty, in this hunger, in this thirst and fatigue and being outnumbered and outarmed, they were sincere to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. They were sincere to His Messenger sallallahu alayhi wa alayhi wa sallam in pledging their support 
and in their sacrifice. And Allah promises them a tremendous reward as well as a victory near at hand, as well as lots of spoils. And that's of the dunya, it's of the world, it's of wealth. And you see here a very important lesson. For those who race to the pleasure of Allah, the dunya comes to them one way or the other. The dunya becomes, as it were, an afterproduct of seeking the akhirah. For those who seek dunya while turning away from the akhirah, it's all stress and pressing forward, seeking more and more, and it never satisfies them. So it comes to them even though they are, they don't have much of dunya, but it's actually going to come to them very soon. So as Muslims, you know, we don't really believe in this, uh, this, this Protestant heresy that even many Protestants would agree is a heresy called the prosperity gospel. You know, you see these mega churches that house 20,000, 40,000 people, and the prosperity gospel is the heretical idea, even heretical by Christian standards, that if you are a true Christian, then it's guaranteed that you're going to have uh, a lot of riches and wealth and ease in your life, and that that is the way to become rich, to become a good Christian. That's the prosperity gospel in a nutshell. We don't believe that, but dunya still comes to those who actually turn away from it and seek the akhirah. So we have to have the correct perspective, you know. Like the dunya comes to those whom Allah loves and those whom Allah doesn't love. But the akhirah is only for those whom Allah loves. Now there's something we want to talk about here in relation to the bay'at al-ridwan. Allah mentions very explicitly that it was a bay'at that was taken beneath the tree. So the Muslims who were present at Al-Hudaybiyah recognize the historic nature of this bay'ah. And we find many narrations which mention how the Sahaba later on in history would go to Mecca and on their way to Mecca they would go through Al-Hudaybiyah and they would seek to find the tree under which they pledged the bay'ah and they would offer salat at that location for barakah, the blessings of, you know, this is the tree where not only the most blessed of creation sat, but the most blessed endeavor that we, they took part in was there. So we have records of Muslims from Sahaba going there and praying beneath that tree. Now in Bukhari, we have a narration from Tariq ibn Abdurrahman who says that when we went out for Hajj, I passed by some people who were offering Salat and I asked, what is this masjid? Now this is, a, this is someone from a la, la, the latter generation, so he's not a Sahabi, but he's going for Hajj and he sees not only are people praying there, but by now, many years later, there's a masjid built on the location of where the bay'ah took place. And he asked the people, what is this masjid? And he's told, this is the site of the tree where the Messenger of Allah took the bay'at al-Ridwan. So not only did they pray, but they also built a masjid. Why am I mentioning this? 
Some of you may understand where I'm going with this. Because there is actually a famous narration from Umar bin Khattab radiallahu anhu, which says that during his khilafah, he heard that people were praying at the tree of Ridwan there in Hudaybiyah. And the narration says that when he found out, he sent some people with the order to look for it and cut that tree down and get rid of it. So what does that narration mean? This narration is sahih, it's sound. It actually happened in our history. But the problem is many people misunderstand why he did it. He didn't order it to be cut down, as some people claim, because he was afraid that people were going to worship the tree. That was not a concern. It was not a fear that all of a sudden, you know, people were going to seek the tree to pray to the tree. That doesn't make any sense. It's preposterous. That's not why he ordered it to be cut down. The reason why he ordered it to be cut down, well, we can speculate. There's a few reasons, and there's a, one primary reason. But we have a hadith, a narration, a riwayah in Sahih al-Bukhari from his son, Ibn Umar. And Ibn Umar radiallahu anhuma says that no one could actually locate the tree after the year of the bay'ah. So people are praying at what beneath or around what they thought was the tree. But according to Ibn Umar, after that year, they couldn't even locate it anymore. Right? So this tree, it's so significant that you know you have a few possibilities here. Either Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala caused it to disappear. But one narration says that the year after the Bayatradwan, there was a huge rainstorm, and that whole valley was flooded and the tree got washed away. There's one riwayah which mentions this. So Either it was caused to disappear, or it was washed away in a flood, or its exact location was wiped from the memory of the people, and they just couldn't uh, find the tree. And they never agreed about where it is. And, and those who were there said, no, we couldn't find it. It's just not there anymore. So Allah Ta'ala knows best. Ibn Umar radiallahu anhumah, he continues and says, we reached Al-Hudaybiyah the next year after the bay'ah. And not even two men among us agreed as to which was the tree under which we gave the bay'ah. And this, he says, was from the rahmah of Allah. It just disappeared. They couldn't find it. So yes, there was a masjid in the area. And there were people for a long time who were praying beneath the tree that they believed was the tree under which the bay'ah was taken. But those who were actually there, those 1,500 or so, those who were actually there realized, no, that's not the actual tree. And it was for this reason, not out of fear that people are going to worship the tree, which is a, which is a preposterous idea. It wasn't because of a fear of shirk. It was because people are wrongly attributing this tree and saying that this is the tree under which the Prophet ﷺ sat when it couldn't have been because it disappeared and no one can remember where it was. So it was just to prevent false attribution, false ascription 
of that blessed event to the tree that was not the actual tree, not because he's afraid that people are going to worship. That is the reason. So that, that's the issue in a nutshell. So yeah, in conclusion, the riwayah is sahih, that he, cut it, he had it cut down, but it wasn't because of fear of shirk. It was because they couldn't identify it anymore. It was gone. And he did not want people to wrongly ascribe that tree to the event in question when it wasn't the tree. And that's why he had it cut down. So where are we in the story? After the bay'ah, Uthman comes back. How did that happen? Well, you have to remember that Al-Hudaybi is not that far from Mecca. And so after the bay'ah was taken, inevitably word spread and reached Quraysh that the Muslims assembled and took a bay'ah that they would avenge the murder of Uthman. But they know they haven't done anything to Uthman. And they were afraid. So they had him go back so that they would know that, no, he was fine. Nothing's happened to him. There's no need for any of that. So Uthman goes back and then they realize he wasn't murdered. Now, what's so interesting and beautiful about this story is that when Uthman was gone, as the Muslims are there at Hudaybiyah waiting patiently for his return, they begin to converse among themselves before the rumor started that he was murdered. And some of them said, oh, how fortunate Uthman is. He's so lucky. How is he lucky? They said, he left us and he's going to the Kaaba and he's able to do the tawaf in safety. They think, for sure he's going to do the tawaf. How fortunate he is. And the Prophet heard this and he said, I doubt that he did tawaf around the Kaaba while we are all held up here. No matter how long he stays, he said, he will never perform tawaf around the bait until I do. And the companions were wondering, well, what's actually preventing him from doing the tawaf? They said, Ya Rasulullah, what, what keeps him from doing the tawaf? And he said, that is my dhan of him. That's, that's my expectation of him, that he's not going to do the tawaf. He will only do the tawaf if he's with us. So when Uthman finally gets back and they realize that he wasn't murdered, one of the first things they asked him about is if he did the tawaf. And when they asked him, he said, how disgraceful your thought is of me. How disgraceful of you to think that I would do the tawaf alone without the Prophet He said, by the one in whose hand is my soul, had I lived there for an entire year and the Messenger of Allah was at Al-Hudaybiyah, I would not have done tawaf until he did. Even if it was for a whole year, I'm not going to do it. So he said, Quraysh, indeed, they invited me to do the tawaf around the bait, but I refused. And those companions, when they heard this, they said, the Messenger of Allah, sallallahu alayhi wa is more knowing of Allah and he thought better of you than we did. This is in Sahih Muslim. So he's back. So what's going on now? We now get to the part of the actual sulh, the, the truce, the peace treaty. At this point, Quraysh 
realizing that it almost came to fighting based on the rumor, they realized that they should actually negotiate a peace treaty with the Prophet So they decided to send their own negotiator. Now this negotiator, this time around, is Suhail ibn Amr. Suhail ibn Amr. One narration says that it was Suhail along with Mikraz ibn Hafs and Huwaitlib ibn Abdul Uzza. They came as a group. But most narrations talk about Suhail ibn Amr alone as a negotiator on behalf of Quraysh. So look at the name here, Suhail. What do we call that name in Arabic? In Arabic grammar, what kind of name is that? Tasghir. So in Arabic, it's diminutive, if you, you know, the small something, right? So a qalam is a pen. A small pin would be a qulaym, fu'ayl, it's on that pattern. So suhayl is small, sahl. What is sahl? Easy. The small, easy. The light, small, easy. Right? So suhayl ibn Amr, the small, easy one, is the, the negotiator. And from this, the Prophet ﷺ took a positive omen, we call a fa'al. The positive omen is not superstitious, by the way. The positive omen is just taking as a, for, a fortuitous sign of something good to come based on a seeming coincidence. Okay, something that has been difficult so far may now become very easy. Suhail, the little easy one. So the Prophet ﷺ sees Suhail ibn Amr coming as the negotiator and he says to the Sahaba, your matter, in the matter of the treaty, has now been made easy for you. Taking Sahel from the name Suhail. And in one narration he says, they wish for a truce if they have sent this man. So who is Suhail ibn Amr? We've said several times before, that when you study the seerah, it can get a bit confusing because there's so many names. Fulan ibn Fulan al-Fulani from Banu Fulan and this Fulani clan and this allegiance and this tribe. It gets confusing. There's so many names. But we've actually talked about Suhail ibn Amr before. And we talked about him in the aftermath of the Battle of Badr. Suhail is an elder among the Quraysh. And he was one of the elders who would attend the Nadi of Quraysh. What's the Nadi? A Nadi in contemporary Arabic literally means a club. So a Nadi Riyadi is basically a gym, right? A fitness club. But the Nadi in ancient Arabia was the place, the structure where the chiefs and the elders would gather for their meetings discussing important matters. Not anyone's allowed to just come in there and speak. But he was one of the elders in that nadi. And he was also called Khatibu Quraysh, the orator or spokesperson of Quraysh, because he was noted for his powerful oratory, his gift of gab, his ability to speak and motivate and inspire people. And now that could be for good or for bad. And we see the incident after Badr 
how different things could have happened. So he was captured at Badr, and we told his story. And when he was captured, he was taken as a prisoner, and he was put in one of the houses of the Muslims. And there is a famous story about him and the wife of the Prophet wasallam, Sayyida Sauda. Sauda radiallahu anha, she went to the house of the Afra family because that family was a grieving family. They lost two of their sons who were, one of them is Mu'awwith ibn Afra who was responsible for killing Abu Jahl. And the two sons were martyred at Badr. So the family's grieving, but they have this prisoner, Suhail ibn Amr, housed with them. Sauda radiallahu anha goes to the house to console the grieving family, and she sees Suhail ibn Amr. And she gets there, and she knows who he is. This is an important chieftain of Quraysh. And she sees him sitting on the ground, tied up, and she said something that, you know, it could have gone in a wrong direction. She said to him, you surrendered? Wouldn't it have been better if you had died honorably? Right? A moment later, she hears the voice of the Prophet ﷺ, who says to her, Ya Sauda, do you stir people up against Allah and His Messenger? Why is he saying that? Because by her saying this, it may rekindle a desire in him to resist and to perhaps fight people and try to escape or do anything like that. So she immediately recognized that she made a mistake. And she said, Wallahi, Ya Rasulullah, I lost sense of what I was saying when I saw him sitting like this. I couldn't control myself. And the Prophet ﷺ accepted her excuse. So he's there after Badr as a prisoner of war, and he's tied up in, their, in that house. One narration concerning Suhail ibn Amr after Badr says that Umar gave a suggestion. Remember, Suhail is Khatib Quraysh. He's the orator of Quraysh. He has the gift of gab. Umar recognized that. And in one narration, he suggested that they should knock his teeth out and cut out his tongue. And the Prophet ﷺ told him, but Allah prohibits such mutilation. And perhaps, he said, perhaps Allah will have Suhail's tongue say something that pleases him, subhanahu wa ta'ala. Perhaps his tongue will be used for something that is pleasing to Allah. And it is about Suhail ibn Amr and some of the other prisoners of Badr that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says in Surah Al-Anfal, Ya ayyuhal nabi, Qul liman fi aydikum min al-asra, in ya'lim allahu fi qulubikum khayra, yu'tikum khayran mimma ukhidha minkum, wa yaghfir lakum, wallahu ghafurun rahim. O Prophet, tell the captives in your custody, if Allah finds goodness in your hearts, He'll give you better than what has been taken from you, and He will forgive you. For Allah is all forgiving and merciful. So there's a story about Suhail that has not yet been told. And we're going to tell that story next week as we explore the negotiations and the terms and the back and forth 
and some of the things that stirred people within the Muslims regarding the terms of the treaty and the lessons that offers us. Inshallah, that will be the last of our discussion on Al-Hudaybiyah next week, ta'ala, before we move on to uh, Khaybar, inshallah ta'ala. Wallahu wa rasuluhu a'lam wa sallallahu wa sallama ala Sayyidina Muhammad wa ala alihi wa sahbihi wa sallam. Uh, it, everyone did except for Amjad ibn Qais. So I don't know of anything in particular regarding Um Sadama giving the bay'ah, but I, I haven't personally come across anything particular. But Allah knows best. So the issue was not a fear of, from him that people were going to worship the tree, but the issue was one. The the issue. The, Mm-hmm. Right. But the Prophet mentions in the hadith that Shaytan, he, he despaired uh, that others in the, in the Jazeera of Arab. So the issue was one of nisbah, of ascription. If I have, let's say, because we have different athar. Yeah, we have different relics. You have, for instance, in the museum in Turkey, the Topaki Museum, you have different athar, relics, relics, many of which are said to be relics belonging to the Prophet ﷺ. In other places, you have other relics, right? Now, what, how, should you, how should you act towards those things? I mean, the default would be, you could say husnaldan, you know, you just assume. But if you know that something is not, like someone has some item and they say, you know, this is something or the other that belonged to the Prophet ﷺ. And you as the leader know with yaqeen that it's not. What, what's the problem here? The problem is the false ascription. It's, a, it's, a, it's not honest. It's not correct. So you would probably say as the ruler, no, that should be disposed of. Not because you're afraid people are going to worship it, but because it's actually wrong to say that this belonged to the Prophet ﷺ when it didn't, because it becomes a false description. And because he knew that the tree disappeared some way or, or another, either through a flood or they just completely forgot, and they knew that that tree wasn't the tree, for people to say, for years to come, this is the tree, that is a false ascription. So to basically get rid of that false ascription, you got rid of the tree, right? If it had actually been the tree, and Muslims were just going there to offer two rak'ahs, tabarrukan bin makan, you know, just seeking barakah from the, from the place itself, then there would be nothing objectionable about that. In fact, we see from his own son, Ibn Umar radiallahu anhu, that he would pray in all of these different places where he knew the Prophet sat. 
And in fact, there are places where there used to be a tree that the Prophet would walk around. And the tree had long been cut down. But when he would get to that place, he would also walk around what is now an empty space, just tracing Athar al-Rasul, the footsteps. So you see, you know, they would, they would touch the, 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 the pommel or the, the wooden part of the mimbar. You know, they would do those things because those were sound, sound ascriptions to the Prophet ﷺ, uh, just seeking the barakah of things that are known, right? So if you know, you go to Sahih Muslim in the commentary of Imam al-Nawawi, in Sharh Sahih Muslim, dozens of times, he'll mention some of these narrations and virtually every time he will say in his sharh that this indicates and with the condition in thabata you know, with the condition that is actually a relic that we know to be a relic if it's not a correct uh, attribution if it's not really something that of his but the person thinks it is, Allah Ta'ala rewards them for their niyyah, right? But if you know it's not, then it becomes a kind of falsehood to ascribe it when it's not. So that's why he got rid of it. Uh, you know, the ulama, they say that the, the niyyah of the ummah of the Prophet ﷺ is so powerful and blessed that Allah rewards people for their niyyah even if they happen to be wrong. Not, not absolutely, but they say, as an example, if you think, Okay, this is any Fulan al Fulani, Sheikh Fulan Fulani, uh, a pious servant of Allah. He's buried here. I do ziyara, I read Al Fatiha, I make dua for this deceased. And then it, you get reward for that, for your niyyah. Even if there was a donkey buried in that grave and it wasn't a human being, you didn't know that. But you had the belief that this was a pious person. You read Al-Fatiha for the deceased. You made dua for them. And Allah rewards you for your niyyah, even if there's no one even buried there. You didn't know that. But if you know that it's a donkey buried in this spot, and you know with certainty, well, you should make some correction. You should make sure that people know there's no one buried there because there is a matter of truth and falsehood here. So it's not a question of, of shirk, really. It's a question of false attribution. And You know, you don't want to falsely ascribe something to the Prophet uh, A statement, an action, or to say this belonged to him when it didn't. I think the bigger issue is assuming that people doing that think that this thing no, no, I mean, I think like issue with the people who are doing this assume, like if observers, not male, assume that those people think that this thing benefit them without Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Show you that's sure. If they don't, you know, that, that's the idea. It's like, you know, yeah. it, it, like when you go visit somebody who like a bear there, you not know that that person doesn't benefit you. Allah is the one who benefits you. Well, it's not from, that, from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. But assuming that that person doing it is from the dead person. That's true. Sure, but that's a, that's a wrong, Allah reveal Allah sends down blessed rain. 
Ibn Abbas would go outside when it rained and he would get his garments wet from the rain and, and he would seek the barakah of the fresh rain, right? When the rain comes down on the Kaaba and the water comes out of the Mizab, Mizab al-Rahmah, you know, the, the tradition is people would get that rain. Allah says it's Mubarak. No one believes that the rain benefits or harms independent of Allah. You know, barakah is from Allah, right? That's it. It's very simple, right? A person touches the black stone, or they kiss the black stone, because of what the Prophet did. They seek the barakah of touching the Rukni Yamani or the walls of the Kaaba. You know, it's very simple. Because the presumption is that, okay, this is a Muslim, so I interpret his actions in light of Tawheed. How do I know what this person is doing is right or wrong? Well, I have the biggest, the biggest qarina, and that qarina, that, that indication is, they're Muslim. So I interpret it through the lens of Tawheed. Unless they do or say something that goes beyond the bounds of Sharia, then you forbid them from that, of course. Yeah. Well, yeah.